Well, hello there, everybody. Good to see you all. Let me get this thing off the screen here. Hey, that would work out a little bit better. Good evening, everyone. It is good to be back. Welcome to Between Meals Podcast. I'm your host, Pastor George Gray, and I hope you're ready for a very interesting conversation tonight. Um, I have been absent for a couple of weeks. Uh, I think it's been two or three, something like that. Um, but I have been uh, I have been out with pneumonia, so I am ready to get started once again, and I don't wish that on anybody. Um, I think I would have rather had COVID, but you know that's just personal preference, I guess. Um, so, a couple things going on in the next couple of weeks. Um, I meant to have last week a interview for you. I spent um, almost three hours talking to a Christian uh, counselor therapist. Um, uh, that's a part of the church here. She's actually one of my elders' wives, and uh, she's just a fantastic uh, counselor. We've been talking about the Christian view of uh, mental health and how to approach it. You know, what 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 is mental health? You know, what is it? What is it? Uh, you know, what should I what should I do with it? How should I approach it as a Christian? Is there a godly approach to this? And we spent a lot of time talking about these things, talking about depression, talking about dealing with medication, dealing with treatments. Um, and it was just a fantastic thing. Hey, everybody, good to see you here. Betsy, good to see you. David, Pat, uh, Keith, um, uh, there's me and uh, Sandra. Good to see everybody here. Um, if you're if you're on, I know there's a few more people on. If you're on, throw up a comment. I'd love to know if you're here. Um, and feel free to comment throughout the uh, throughout the evening. So I do my podcasts live because I don't have enough time to edit them. Um, so this just makes it easier and better, and uh, kind of keeps me on my toes sometimes. But anyway, um, hopefully next week I will have that interview for you. Um, and that'll be, that'll be, uh, put out there. I'm really, uh, really interested to see how that's gonna, um, uh, well, hopefully that will be a good, a good tool for you. So, um, tonight we have a uh, topic that I think is absolutely incredibly important for our day today, uh, especially with what's going on in our world and what's going on in the church, some of the craziness that is going on, uh, around us. Um, I actually just read, an, an article today, um, as I was getting ready for tonight about some kids, um, I can't even remember where they were, but they had two, two teenagers, a 14 year old and a 16 year old who broke into this, um, uh, 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 let's see, a, a mentally disabled man's house just to set him on fire. Like that was the thing. Now today what we're talking about is more relativism, the authority of the scriptures and the gospel. And this kind of, Stuff is happening so much in our world today, and it's happening all over the place. You see these the, these kids with absolutely no grasp of right and wrong, and you gotta wonder what is going on in the minds of these kids and in their family and in their in their you know the, the people who are around them, the people who are teaching them. What is going on in these kids' minds that is making things like this okay? And we're going to talk about that a little bit tonight. Now, if you're an astute observer, you'll also know that. Um, my office has had a little bit of a facelift. I'll throw up some pictures uh, in the uh, probably next week of uh, of some of the change. So it's one of the reasons why we didn't have a podcast two weeks ago because we were two or two or two or three weeks ago. I don't know. It was a while ago um, because this was all torn apart. I actually just put everything together again today. So um, that's uh, it's it's been a good it's been a good long. Um, a good long while. But so the, the the topic that we're dealing with today, I think is actually so important for the world that's around us, not just because of the nonsense that's going on, but because us as Christians. Uh, I've mentioned this a couple times in the pulpit, that when we start talking about, and everyone loves to talk about end times, when we start talking about end times, we start talking about what happens, you know, before Christ returns, everyone gets excited about this idea of, of, of Christ returning. And, and you should, you should be excited about that. 
But there is a a real concern that should be with us at the same time. It's called the great falling away. And that's when a unfortunately large portion of the church turns its back on the truth of God, turns its back on on Christ. And um, even in, the, in 2 Thessalonians, uh, Paul, Paul writes him and says, you know, look, the end is not going to come until the great wall falling away happens uh, and the man of evil is, is revealed. So there's this there's this thing that, that, that has to happen before the end times come, and that is the church actually turning its back on the truth and starting to follow lies and starting to follow our own ways. Um, and this is the, the basic idea behind this is called moral relativism. The idea is that you get to decide what is right and what is wrong. So one of the reasons why uh, over the years you see the church will rise up to this place of prominence and then all of a sudden it will fall away. It will fall out of favor with God. It'll fall into judgment. It always ends up coming about the same way. The church initially focuses in on the truth of God. It focuses in on the on the word. It focuses in on uh, on the uh, inerrancy of Scripture, and then and then uh, you know God's hand of blessing is on that, and the church church's influence grows. And all of a sudden, we decide that we can make up these things for ourselves. That we can decide what's right. We can decide what's wrong. We can decide what's good and what's bad, and we can decide what's evil and we can decide what's sin and what's not. And the reality is that's not. That's not up to us. That's got nothing to do with us. We don't have the capability of doing this. We don't have the right to even try to do anything like this. We are servants. We are not God. We are not the king. Um, so this brings up a couple of different questions that I think as Christians we need to answer. Now, consider this. All over the world and all throughout the church, the concept of moral relativism is being embraced. It's being promoted. It's even being ordained into the pulpits of some denominations. A question that we need to wrestle with as believers is that can we both can we believe in the Christian faith and moral relativism at the same time? Can we believe that this is the absolute word of God, the standard by which all men will be judged and believe that we can decide for ourselves what is right and wrong? And of course, the obvious answer is no, we can't. Um, it's, that's not even, it's not even in the realm of possibility. You can't also, you can't be, uh, we can't be God and, uh, and sinner at the same time. So, but is moral relativism something the church should worry about? And I want to have two scriptures here for you, uh, that I want to toss up to you. The first one is Isaiah 5, 20 and 21. This is from the New King James Version. It says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise. Now listen to this carefully. Wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. So woe to those who judge for themselves that they are wise beyond all others and those who judge for themselves that they are prudent beyond all others. Now it doesn't take a genius to look around the world and see this playing out in every area of society, in government and in the church, plainly. As society falls deeper and deeper into sin, more and more Christians are experiencing things that they were simply not prepared for. And one of the big things that a lot of longtime Christians are starting to have to deal with today that they weren't necessarily ready for is sin in the family. All across the world, many believers find themselves having to make a choice because there are certain sins that have become very, very popular today. Uh, it's believed that one in six millennials 
have adopted what we will just call an immoral lifestyle. They identify with an immoral lifestyle. I've uh, got to be careful with our al- algorithms. I don't want to be put in YouTube and Facebook jail, but I think you understand what I'm talking about. So all across the world, people have are finding themselves stuck in this place, and I've watched this battle play out in multiple families across multiple churches, and you know even even missions across the across the world. And you you start to see this where a friend or a relative makes a choice to either turn their back on God, to turn turn away from the church, or to embrace a clearly ungodly lifestyle while trying to also say that they're a Christian. Now, when this happens, there's only a couple of choices that we have. You see, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. You see, God says there's, you are, you are, there is no gray area. You're either mine or you're not. It's that simple. When this happens, we have a couple of choices. One, we can compromise our faith. We can find a way to justify the sin of that child or friend or relative or grandchild. They may be living a life that's unacceptable to God for other people, but somehow in your brain you rationalize that because they're your child or your friend, that somehow it's going to be okay because you and God have an understanding. You've prayed for them and and you and God have worked out a deal. Even though they continually embrace an ungodly lifestyle, somehow God is going to overlook that for you. This is something that doesn't work because we don't get collectively saved. I cannot save you. I cannot pray you into the kingdom. You have to make a choice. I can pray that you accept Christ and then enter the kingdom, but I cannot pay that price for you. You have to make that choice yourself. You see, today we're told that God, that the God of the Bible is homophobic, that he's transphobic, that he's Islamophobic, that he's the the God of the Bible is this horrible, evil, wicked person. The problem is that God is not phobic of anything. God is not hateful. God is righteous. God is good. God is true. God is right. God is the singular moral authority in all things, for all people, through all time. There are no other higher authorities that we can appeal to to get our behavior approved. And because God is the king, he gets to decide Who gets to enter his kingdom? Rather we like it or not, God decides that we don't. Now our other choice, so the first choice is to compromise and try to figure out how to feel okay with their sin and maybe make a deal with God. Our other choice is is to stand on the truth. And this is the hard one. You see, whoever that person is, no matter how much you care about them, no matter how you may have raised them, no matter how much you have prayed for them, no matter if they're your child, grandchild, uncle, nephew, cousin, niece, nephew, whatever. If they have embraced a sinful lifestyle, whether it be theft, murder, immorality, pick one. There is a very real thing that we need to be able to grasp a hold of 
that is very hard for us to get a hold of. And that thing that we need to grasp a hold of is really simply this. They are not saved. That might be really hard for you to hear. Maybe you, you know what? I don't want to, I don't, I don't, I don't want to hear this anymore. You need to hear this because here is the reality. Morality is not relative. Morality is not based on your opinion. Morality is based on the teachings of God's word. So when God says this is moral and acceptable, then it is. And when God says this is immoral and unacceptable, then it's immoral and unacceptable. And those who embrace that lifestyle, regardless of how much they've grown up in church, how much they've gone to church, how much they may read their Bible and study, and how much they may even pray, you cannot embrace both God and grace and sin at the same time. See, one of the big one of the big questions that come that come up with it, you know, I don't know why, you know, my friend, he still loves Jesus, but he's just in this lifestyle. I hear that constantly. And you know what? I I feel horrible for those people. I really do. But here's the reality. Here's the difference between a saved person dealing with sin and an unsaved person dealing with sin. The saved person fights. I hope you heard that. It's very, very simple. It's not a complicated thing. The difference between an unsaved person dealing with a sin and a saved person dealing with a sin is the saved person fights. The unsaved person embraces the sin and tries to rationalize it in their life. That is an unsaved person. You have embraced a lifestyle that God cannot embrace. The unsaved person may actually be dealing with the same temptation, but they fight. They might fall, but they get up and they continue the fight. They're not surrendering because this is just how I was born. I'm sorry, that's not the way it works. That might be very hard for some of you to hear, but you need to hear it. See, if we don't, if we cannot bring ourselves to the place where we can openly and honestly at least in our own in our own minds, make it very clear that these people are, are not are not saved. Then we will never be in a position where we can adequately minister to those people so that they can come back to the Lord or come to the Lord for the first time, whichever whichever case it might be. If we won't even acknowledge the fact that they're sinful and separated from God, we cannot hope to actually put ourselves in a position where we can actually minister truth to them. Because how do you minister truth to someone about the sin in their life when just a couple of days ago you were trying to make excuses for the sin in their life? So you can't do that. You have to stand. You, can, you, you can't stand. You, you can't ride the middle of the fence here. You're either in God's camp where his word is everything or you're not. So you have to make a choice. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Bitter, sweet, and sweet, bitter. So another scripture is Judges 17, verse 6. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The simplicity of this passage is just amazing. This is, this is such a fantastic uh, uh, passage, and it speaks to so much about the authority that's in our life. See, when we have no king, then we have no authority higher than ourselves. When we have nothing that we are actually submitting and committing ourselves to, then there is no authority greater than us. When there's no authority greater than us, then we become a God unto ourselves. You see, that didn't work out in the garden, and it's not going to work out very well today. So when we fall into the trap that if it's all right with me, then it's all right, you know, I think 
Uh, Oprah has said it on her show a number of different times. Please don't ever watch this. Uh, watch her. I, anyway, where she says, there's no absolute truth. There's just your truth. What a bunch of nonsense that is. Uh, truth is truth. <coughs> reality is reality. God's word is true. Man's word is false. It doesn't matter how you want to, you can split that hair however you want. It doesn't make a bit of difference. God wins. We don't. So we're judged by his word, not our word. So yes, there is an absolute truth. It's called scripture. But now if we have a king, then the king gets to set the standards for those who want to live in his kingdom, right? So you think about this. Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is what? Lord. Confess with your mouth the Lord or the Lordship of Jesus. Confess with your mouth openly to everyone around you that Jesus is your Lord, that Jesus is your King. In simple terms, you cannot claim that Jesus is Lord of your life while simultaneously ignoring his teachings. Matthew 7.21 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Now, this begs a question. Where do we find the will of the Father? Where is it that any one of us can go to find the will of the Father? It's really simple. It's his word. There's a reason that this document exists. The reason this document exists is because our ability to discern right and wrong for ourselves is flawed. We're broken. We need God's help to be able to do this. And he wrote down everything that we would need to know about his character and nature, moral, morality, immorality. We know everything that we need to know about everything because God gave it to us in his word. Everything that we need to know about life is written in God's word. The problem is you got to go looking for it. You got to actually spend time in that thing. Boy, isn't that annoying. You know, it'd be great if God just gave us like a bullet point punch list. Couldn't, I mean... Couldn't God have just created a, created computers and PowerPoint way back in the in the first century? It would have just been so much easier. Uh, I, I think I like the long form myself. I mean, just you know, call me crazy, but pretty sure the Word of God works. Now, one of the great things about the Word of God is that it does not have to be. It doesn't have to give us a list of do's and don'ts. You see, it tells us through the interaction of between God and His people. Everything we need to know about how to please God and what what He what is right in His eyes and what is wrong in His eyes, we clearly see what pleases God, and we very clearly see what doesn't please God. We see people living fundamentally righteous lives, and, and the amazing blessing that comes along with that. We see people living living decent lives, and then we see them fall. We see them do terrible things, and then we see God restore them. You know, everything you need to know about how God is going to act and react with, uh, uh, towards you and with you is all there. But for some reason today, a very popular process in the church is to move away from God's word as the absolute standard and, the, and, and authority. See, we also learn that God's thinking on a subject doesn't change over time. And look at this, Malachi 3.6. It says, I am the Lord. I do not change. I do not change. God is telling us right there, look, I am the Lord. What was true with me yesterday is going to be true with me tomorrow. It's going to be true with me in a hundred years. It's going to be true with me in a millennia. 
I do not change my mind. You're not going to convince me. And there's nothing about you or your persuasive little argument that is going to somehow make me see things differently. What I have declared to be good is good. What I have declared to be bad is bad. Period. Yet, we've got denominations and independent churches all around the world that continue to fall victim to the allure of being socially acceptable uh, and maintaining a pleasing public image. You see, we don't want to upset the masses because if we upset the masses, then people might, you know, they might stop coming to church. Okay, if you're teaching the truth of God, you're teaching his word and you're 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 putting that out there as truth you're not you're you're not being biased about it you're just plainly putting the truth of god in front of people and they walk away there's something that you need to understand they walked away because they couldn't deal with the truth God is still working on them you don't change what it is you're teaching you don't change what it is you're preaching you simply just acknowledge that God is doing something in their life. We don't chase people. We don't, we don't tailor our life or our message in order to keep the congregation happy. Anyone who's been at the church here long enough has pretty much figured out that I, 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 I just can't bring myself to do that. You think about this. More and more often, serious moral issues... And this is where moral relativism starts to come into play here. Serious moral issues of our day are being skirted around by popular preachers because they're popular preachers and they don't want to they don't want to deal with it. So I don't know how many of you guys remember Carl Lentz. Um, he's a former pastor of Hillsong. He's been removed because he had an affair. Um, but a number of years ago, and that's not what we're dealing with right now. But a number of years ago, he went on the View. Why? Any minister would do that as beyond me. It's, it's, it's a hateful, spiteful place full of, full of ladies who just want to do nothing more than argue and, and, and spew their vile. Um, but nonetheless, he, he went on there. And while he was on the show, Joy Behar asked him, does your church teach? Now, the, the question was simple. Does your church teach that abortion is wrong? He dodged the question. He was like, you know, God's the judge, and, you know, I just want to get to know you and your story. And, you know, I, his answer was okay, but the, 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 the problem was he didn't answer the question. You think about the question, does your church teach? Okay, just, just stop there just for a quick second. What difference does it make if your church teaches? It's in the Bible. It's called commandment number six, you shall not murder. Well, you know, it's a matter of perspective. No, it's not. It's not a matter of perspective. It's really simple. That's a life. You're snuffing that life out. End of story. He couldn't give them a simple answer. He just skirted around it. I understand why he did it, but the problem was he didn't actually answer the question. He kept his popularity, but what you can tell by the way things worked out for him is his popularity didn't carry him very far, did it? Here's a question for us. As Christians, is it our job to fight against sin or is, is it our job to teach the truth of God's word? 
This is a very interesting question because some people want to fight against sin. I remember being, um, I used to lead the uh, uh, basic chapter on at JCC, Brothers and Sisters in Christ, and I led that for a while. And a young man came on campus who wanted to do some ministry, and he decided not to connect with any of the Christian clubs that are on campus uh, because he was above that. He was called beyond that. And he went on the campus, and he had a shirt on that said, God hates, and just listed all these different sins. Now, the, the problem is all that, Everything that was on his shirt was was true. God does hate those things because those things are sin. The problem was that was the way he walked into it. He 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 decided he was going to be the warrior against sin. So what he brought, what he brought people was a declaration of how pathetic and terrible they are. What he didn't bring those people was the fact that God had something better for them. He didn't bring them truth. He brought them condemnation. He brought them nothing of value. You see, the thing is, if I'm teaching the truth of what is moral, of what is good, of what is right, then God will bring the, God will bring the, uh, 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 the conviction to the person all by, all by himself. He doesn't need my help. But if I'm trying to bring conviction, if I'm going to convict someone into heaven, then the problem is mine because I got to ask myself at that point, do I actually understand what the truth is? And the truth is that no matter how deep that person is in their sin, there is grace available to that person and it is my job to bring that to them. If I bring grace to that person and they accept it, the conviction of their sin will come all by itself because they're standing in the light of the presence of God. They don't need me to point out all the dirt in their life. They need believers to help lead them to the truth. Oh yeah, sorry Betsy. I mean there, you know, the street preachers are all over the place. But here's the thing, when I when we I refuse to stand up for the truth, I'm refusing to teach the truth, then I have to wonder what it is that I'm leading people to. So a very difficult reality is that if we cannot agree on the authority of God's word, then in, re- then in truth, we can't actually agree on anything. You see, as Christians, if, if we can't agree that this is the authority for all things, then in reality, as a Christian, we don't have any common ground. It becomes very difficult for, for, difficult for us to agree on anything. See, if you're approaching people as God is the God that hates X, Y, and Z, I don't know if I have common ground with you. You see, because your, your, your understanding is, is, is one-sided. You know, your spirituality is more relativistic. And that's not, that, that doesn't help anybody. That doesn't correct the problem. We have to approach this as Jesus would approach things. And Jesus approached the worst sinners of his day. And what did he approach them with? Grace. Mercy. Kindness. The people who would come to him and say, you know, Lord, I remember Zacchaeus came to him and said, Lord, Zacchaeus was a, was basically stealing people doing their taxes. He said, you know, Lord, I'm going to give back everything that I ever took from anybody. Jesus didn't ask him to do that. What did, what did Jesus bring to him? Jesus brought to him truth and kindness. And the conviction that comes with a relationship with God brought Zacchaeus to a place where he knew what he needed to do in order to start making things right. Jesus didn't have to do anything. See, every time we go up against a socially sensitive issue, my default is going to be against is going to be the word of God. So if someone's authority is not the word of God, but they claim to be a Christian, 
they're going to have a very hard, very difficult time dealing with me because whenever there's a sensitive social issue, I'm not going to default to the sens- to the socially sensitive side. I'm going to default to the scripturally accurate side because I don't have it in me to bring back to to, to bring to people false hope. You know, I know you're I know you're in that lifestyle. I know you're 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 just totally sold out for it. But you know what? God will probably you're a nice person. God will probably work it out in the end. No, no, it's got nothing to do with you being a nice person or not. Uh, and God will work it out at the end because in the end, God wins and his word wins. So if you're not familiar with the idea, if maybe we've been talking about moral relativism, if you're thinking, I'm not exactly sure what moral, I don't even know if I if I know what moral relativism is. So there is a definition that comes from the Stanford Dictionary of Philosophy. There's, there's a couple of definitions of moral relativism, but the most common one that everyone can most easily relate to is called meta-ethical moral relativism, or MMR. Um, so basically, it, 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 it reads like this. It says, the truth or falsity of moral judgments or their justification, is not absolute or universal, but relative to the traditions, convictions, and practices of a group of persons. Doesn't that sound great? So the idea behind this is that um, there are no moral absolutes. There are no absolute truths. Rather, it be uh, sexual, just a sense of right or wrong, doesn't make any difference. Um, there is no absolute truth. There is only your truth. Um, there's no absolute right or wrong. There is only your right or wrong. And of course, it's ob- it's terribly wrong if I were to try to impose my sense of right and wrong on you. That would just be sinful. I would be, be a terrible, terrible, terrible person for trying to do something like that. Which is funny because... If I believe that I'm supposed to do that, isn't it up to me? Isn't it my truth that I want it to? Anyway, circular reasoning. So in, en- in essence, it basically comes down like this. If your society believes in child sacrifice, then who are we to judge? Who are we to judge? If your society believes that raping women of those who you, def- of those who you defeated in battle is perfectly acceptable, well, then who are we to judge? You know, if if just murdering everyone who defies the government is acceptable to you, then who are we to judge? Now, you think about this just for a quick second. That last one, that's what the Chinese are doing right now. And you know what our president said? Well, you know, it's a different culture. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, what? Uh, it's a different culture? Uh, I was under the impression that murder was murder, no matter what culture it was in. Uh, and the idea of just being able to take any take any of the women of the of the people that you conquered in battle that was a common practice among the Muslim world. ISIS did that on a regular basis. They felt entirely justified in doing it. Didn't hear a whole lot about that in the news, did you? Why? Because well, that's their social customs. That's just that's just how they do it. That's moral relativism in practice. Now, this ideology has been around for many many centuries. But it has never actually been widely widely accepted, mainly because it's insane, uh, until the late 20th century. In the late 20th century, all of a sudden, people started getting really smart. And today, it is actually a general, a general, general, generally, wow, what is going on with me? Generally accepted belief, and it's promoted by a lot of very influential people. Oprah promotes moral relativism. Um, a man named Richard Rohr, who if you're not familiar with that, he is a um, he is a monk who claims to be a Christian. 
He's not. He teaches something called panentheism, which is basically a universal Christ. Um, we'll get into that at some point in time uh, because it's a horribly demonic, evil practice. But this guy has people eating out of his hand all over the world uh, because anything other than the Bible, I mean, because the Bible has these standards that are in it, and the last thing we want to do is have to deal with those standards. Um, but there are also there are many many others who are embracing this. There are several large denominations that are that have been embracing this for years. The American Episcopal Church, the the, the United Methodist Church, multiple smaller non denominational churches have all begun to embrace this and even ordain these things into the pulpit. Now, being able to see this is actually relatively easy. However, there's a question that we have to answer: How is it that we got here? The fact that it's happening is one thing, and we need to acknowledge that it's happening. Otherwise, we don't know how to react when it when things when things come up. But the but the 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 question that we really do need to wrestle with is how did we get here? If we don't know how we get here, then we don't know how to protect ourselves. How is it possible for God's people, the church, to wander so far from the truth? How is it possible? For so many people who claim to be committed Christians, I'm a committed Christian, I'm a Christ follower, I'm a, I'm a Bible-believing Christian. How is it so possible for, the, for those people to embrace a belief system that is so far away from the teachings of Scripture? The answer, in my opinion, is actually very, very simple, and, and that is that the church has stopped largely. They've stopped believing that the Bible is the inspired, timeless, inerrant, Word of God. Let me say that again. They've stopped believing that the Bible in its entirety is the inspired, timeless, inerrant Word of God. In a lot of the modern church movement, it's called the emergent church or the progressive church, the Bible is believed to be not God's Word to man, the Bible in those in those groups is is looked at more along the lines of man's word about God. And hopefully you understand how those two things work together. There's God's word, and then there's man's word about God. So if it's God's word to us, then it is 100% authoritative. It has complete and total control in our life, and there is no way around that. But if it's just man's word about God, well, then it's subjective. Then it's then it's then it's opinion based. Then it's you know what I don't I don't need to listen to all that. I can just look at whatever I want. That's not true. That's not the way it works. It's either God's word or it's useless. And if if it's not God's word, and if it's just somebody else's opinion, well, I can come up with opinion. I can come up with a better opinion, one that works better for me. I can come up with something that is more morally relative to my situation. So why do I need to read and understand this? I mean, granted, Jesus said that, you know, we should, but, you know, I don't see anything else leading me to that. See, that's the problem. And this is becoming more and more and more prevalent. So um, I want to show you a trailer to a... Uh, uh, to a, to a movie that I actually think you need to you need to watch. It's called the uh, now. If you haven't watched the first one, it's called the American Gospel. They're long, so the first one is like two and a half hours long. The second one is like three hours long, folks. Um, so it is uh, it's it's not something um, I sat down and watched it in one in one sitting. But that's 
because I have a little bit more time to do things like that than most other people. But it's something you might want to just sit down and watch in a couple settings um, because it is very, very deep. And what this is mostly, it is a conversation between Bible-believing Christians and the progressive and uh, uh, humanist church, people who have um, uh, been in the church and then left or people who are trying to pervert the teachings of Christ. Um, the emergent church is probably one of the most heretical groups in existence today, but they're growing like they're they're growing like wildfires. It's it's crazy to see. So I'm going to show you a, a, a the the preview trailer for this. So this is American Gospel Two: Christ Crucified. Now, if you don't want to buy the video, if you go to American Gospel Online, um, you can actually rent it. I think for four dollars through Vimeo, and you have like four or five days to watch it. So you don't have to necessarily watch it at, at, at one shot. You can take it in a couple of different settings. But uh, I want you to I want you to see this because this is. This is just a, a phenomenal thing. This will give you an idea of how prevalent this is in our society today. I'm concerned that people today don't know who God is. They do not know God because they've rejected Jesus Christ the Son and they stand condemned. Do you think that's respectful of other religions? Senator, I'm a Christian. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. You know, people say, like, when did you lose your faith? I'm like, it started 15 minutes after I accepted Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. Immediately encountered stuff in Scripture that I was like, that makes no sense to me. It's a generation of people who were not taught Scripture, and so they were pretty quick to throw it out. Christ died for our sins. How does that work exactly? Like, by what cosmic mechanism does the death of Jesus take care of your personal sins? Jesus was volunteering to drink the cup of God's wrath. That turns God into some kind of like divine child abuser. Does God really love me or has he simply been paid off? The Bible is so helpful to us if we just read it, you know. We're going to read things that offend our sensibilities. Did God kill Jesus? Yes. I don't think God killed Jesus. You cannot read the Gospels and think that. And how could that ever be good news? And this is the dilemma of the American pulpit. We've got a God of wrath versus a God of love. And I was watching a lot of my friends reject the Christianity they grew up with. If there is any other way to get around a fiery, eternal pit, why would we not be open to that idea? This creates a basis for what I'd call a natural religion and a universal religion. Like, why would you want to worship a God if you could imagine a better God? We are saved from God himself. That's not the God I worship. That's not the God of the Bible. When I survey the wondrous cross. This is the doctrine of Christianity. This is the doctrine that separates Christianity from every other religion in the world. Did Jesus go to the cross unwillingly? No. It's a pretty amazing, uh, pretty amazing documentary. I really, really, really recommend it. Yeah.
that you take a look at it. Um, so now we can get in the history of this another time, but it, it doesn't take a seminary education to see this starting to play out in the church. Excuse me. All around the world. You have people like Andy Stanley who has multiple times openly called for the church to let go of the entire Old Testament because the Old Testament makes it too hard for people to come to Christ because the Old Testament is where we actually find the standards of God. Some people think that as New, New Testament Christians, we get all of our, all of our standards and all of our understanding from the, from the, from the New Testament. That's just not true. Paul, in most of his most of his books and all the all the early church writers of the first century, what they were doing is they were elaborating on the truth of the Old Testament in the New Testament setting. They were helping people understand how to apply the things that were taught in the in the Old Testament. Now that Christ has come, they're actually applying the truth that has already been there. So disconnecting ourselves from the Old Testament is not only a bad idea; it is flat out heretical. Now, one of the things I'm going to do once this is over, if you're on the YouTube channel, now, if you're on Facebook, I really do recommend that you start look, watching this from YouTube. The link is actually in the description uh, because in YouTube, I can actually attach other things. And one of the thing I'm, things I'm going to link to this video is a debate between Jeff Durbin, um, who is a, uh, a fundamentalist, uh, between Jeff Durbin and Andy Stanley on this very topic. And it is, it's, it's amazing to watch. Um, and I really recommend you, you take a look at that because there are so many other teachers who are trying to let go of the truth of scripture in favor of some sort of spiritually relativistic ideology that makes us feel good about who we are. It's, it's really, really crazy. Um, you got, uh, denominations like, um, uh, like the Episcopals, Methodists, and even a lot of Baptist church teaching that the Old Testament is not real history. It's just a collection of moral stories meant to inspire us to be good. See, the list of compromises goes on and on, but the outcome is still the same. The idea that the Bible cannot be trusted as the absolute authority in all things for all people in all time. The word of God is turned into suggestions of men. You think about that. You get the word of God, the word of God written through men to us to give us an understanding of how we are to relate to God is now being transformed into the word of men about God trying to inspire us to be better. Now, slowly over time, one doctoral, doctrinal position at a time gets let go of as churches start following, start following this type of ideology until the Bible has just lost all authoritative meaning altogether. Um, I was just reading an article. Let's see if I can pull this one up. Yep, okay. Just reading an article uh, about three women clergy from Lutheran Episcopal and United Church of Christ, all in the same area, who decided to come together and pen a letter in support of Planned Parenthood. So these are women preachers, women pastors, who have been given authority over to, to shepherd the flock that has been placed under their care. And one of the most important things that they think they can do is combine their resources to throw support to an organization dedicated to exterminating as many lives as possible. How is that a representation of the gospel? I don't even know how people who are in those positions can claim to be teaching the word of God, but at the same time be so spiritually bankrupt that they think that this kind of public declaration is a good idea. It's pretty easy to see that for these women, the Bible is not their their uh, 
their standard of authority. It is not their, their absolute authority for right and wrong, moral and immoral. And honestly, I not only fear for them because, because of the role that they have taken up as leaders of those churches, the scripture tells us that we will be judged more harshly. Teachers will be judged more harshly because we are actually teaching people how to walk in righteousness and how to walk in uh, a right standing with God. And these women are obviously completely uncaring whether or not they do that well or not. But I also fear for the people who are under their care because for some reason, for some reason, the people under their care are so spiritually and scripturally ignorant that they're staying under the leadership of these people. And that's a scary, scary, scary thing. Now, you can spend all day talking about the reasons why people would choose to go down this path path of scriptural compromise. But in my experience, there's when you, if, if you actually look at these types of compromises and you start tracing them backwards, you know, there's there's where denominations are today. But if you trace these kind of compromises backwards to see where did this thing start to happen initially, what was the first compromise that's there? Not always, this isn't, isn't a universal statement by any stretch of the imagination, but a large percentage of the time, the first initial compromise ends up being in the same place. Now, if you're unfamiliar with me, maybe um, uh, this will help you. The first compromise tends to be Genesis chapters 1 through 11, the accounts of creation, the global flood, and the table of nations. Now, obviously, we're not talking about everyone, and, and, and this isn't a universal thing. But from, from a denominational standpoint, if you go back to the places where the denominations released statements where they have changed the accepted doctrinal positions that they've always held about the truth of Scripture regarding these things, creation, the global flood, and the table of nations typically fall into the, into the first category. This is a popular trend today, um, and uh, among a lot of uh, among a lot of churches, one of the things you'll hear about about Genesis one through eleven is that they will either never speak about it. <laughs> this happens a lot. We never teach about that because it's too controversial. Okay, where life comes from, where fossils come from, where languages come from, where people groups come from, the fact that we're all one race created created in Adam from the beginning of time, that we all have the same genetic code, that there's no that there, there there's there's no multiple races on the planet, there's just one race, the human race because that's how God made us. None of that is important. It's too controversial. I have a hard time believing that. But there it is. So they either never talk about it or they just pretend that the Bible begins with Abraham. Let's just go to Genesis 13 or 14 and we're just, we're just going to pretend that that's where the Bible begins and we're just going to, just going to tell people they can read that other stuff, but that's not really that big of a deal because it's not real history. They relegate Genesis 1 through 11 to metaphor and allegory because it's too difficult to come face to face with the truth that now, if you're going to stand on Genesis 1 through 11, now you've got to go up against Darwin. And on the other side of that, the more popular trend that's happening in churches, and this has been going on for over 150 years, is they take the position that Genesis 1 through 11 could not be true as written. And then they try to explain it away by using one of many, many theories of trying to incorporate some degree of Darwinism into Genesis 1 through 11. God directed evolution, theistic evolution. You got the gap theory. You have, um, you got the day age theory. You got the cosmic temple view. You got, there's just, there's, there's so, so many of them. 
I find it a lot easier to just believe what the Bible says. And as I've been studying creation for over 25 years now, I have no reason to doubt it as it is. And the funny thing is, the scientific community is now waking up to the fact that Darwin got it wrong. Darwin's initial premise of all life originating from one common ancestor and then you know evolving slowly over, over time, because of genetics, it doesn't work. It, it's, it completely falls flat on its face, which personally I find to be very, very fun. Um, but here's the same thing. No matter how you compromise that, they all believe, they all start with the same flawed assumption. And the same flawed assumption is really simply this, that the Bible got it wrong. That's the initial assumption that they make about Genesis 1 through 11 when they try to reinterpret those passages to make them more socially acceptable in our current scientific climate. But they all have to begin with the Bible got it wrong. And then they try to reinterpret it to, might, to, to, to try to not lose the authority of the Bible. And it's kind of funny that, uh, well, it's not funny. It's just, it's just kind of tragic that a lot of Christians don't care about this. And I understand that. They have Jesus and uh, so it's not a, not a big thing uh, for them. But what they don't understand is that this one issue, the singular issue causes more people to stay away from the church than almost any other singular issue. Because Christians won't stand on the truth of God's word. You got Psalm 11.3. The foundations are destroyed. What can the righteous do? The foundation of our faith in its simplest terms is the authority of God's word. It's this. If this is not true, then our entire faith falls apart. People say, no, 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 pastor. Our faith is founded on Jesus. Jesus is the foundation of our faith. Okay, that's great. Um, where do you find Jesus? Where do you get your understanding of Jesus? Well, it's in, it's, 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 it's in the Bible. Uh, you mean uh, just in the New Testament? So there's nothing about Jesus in the Old Testament? Well, no. I mean, all the prophecies about Jesus, about where he was going to be born, how he was going to live, when he was going to be born, how, how things were going to happen, all, all, of, all of the stuff that actually validates the life of Jesus is actually found in the Old Testament and then lived out in the New Testament. So, but, uh, but you know, it's, it's, but the authority of Scripture is not really the, 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 the foundation of our faith. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. The authority of Scripture is absolutely foundation, uh, foundational to our faith, but the problem is if you stand on that, you also have to throw out more, uh, moral relativism because God's Word has standards. But once we undermine the authority of God's Word, even, even in just one area, it makes it a lot easier to compromise in other areas. Richard Dawkins, one of the most famous atheists in the world, as well as many other atheists, have openly stated multiple, multiple times that the easiest way to get people to walk away from the Christian faith is to help them understand that Genesis 1-11 through 11 is wrong, to get them to compromise on the creation story, and most of the time they can get them to walk away from their faith. And they've proven this to be true over and over and over again. Now the funny thing about that, about the church compromising on the, on the creation and the flood, that very same act is actually found in Scripture. We're actually told that in the end days, this very compromise would be happening in the church. And now that it's happening in the church, you got, you got, you got part of the church saying, no, 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 that's not true. We, you can't trust that. That's actually not, that's not real science. This isn't the way this works. If they would just read 2 Peter 3, they would realize that God already told us that this is going to be one of the signs of the end times, that the, the church is going to be, is going to begin to deny this very thing. Check this out, 2 Peter 3, 3 through 7. Let me, uh, there we go. It says, first understand this, during the last days, scoffers will come 
following their own desires. Scoffers are people within the church, people who should know the who, who should know the, the the truth, but they don't follow the truth. Those are people in the church. Uh, and asking, where is this promise? Uh, promise? Where is the is this? Excuse me. Where is this promised coming of His? For our fathers have died, and everything goes on just as it has since the beginning of creation. But wanting so much to be right about this, they overlook the fact that it was by God's word that long ago there were heavens. And there was land which rose out of water and existed between the waters. And that by means of these things, the world at the time was flooded with water and destroyed. It's by that same word that the present heavens and earth have been preserved are being kept for fire until the day of judgment when ungodly people will be destroyed. It's amazing to me how many Christians keep forgetting, willingly or not, they just keep forgetting, that the Bible tells us that there will time will come where the church is going to let go of these two important doctrinal positions, that through water everything was created and by water everything was destroyed. And that the current world is being held for fire. That's the judgment at the end days. <sighs> Today there are all sorts of crazy compromised views about scripture. Uh, and they come from all sides. And the really sad part is that a huge portion of the, of the church is so scripturally ignorant that they're unable to spot the false the false teachings. I'm going to show you one quick TikTok video that has been, has gone viral for all the wrong reasons. I want to show you. So this this is a guy. Uh, I and I honestly, I I intentionally did not look up a whole lot of things about him because I, I don't care. Um, I don't need to know about his past. I don't need to know where he is. Um, I've I found out a few little details about him, but it doesn't matter. This is someone who who is um, uh, uh, claiming to be a pastor, a teacher of the Bible, a called man of God, and this is his view of Jesus. So this is a uh, gosh, it's hard to even even do this, but here you go. I know that there's a part of the Gospel of Mark where Jesus uses a racial slur. In Mark chapter 7, there's the account of the Seraphonician woman, a woman who is Syrian and Greek, both of which there were strong biases against within the Jewish community. And she comes to ask Jesus to heal her daughter who's possessed by a demon. And what is Jesus's response? He says, it's not good for me to give the children's food, meaning the children of Israel's food, to dogs. He calls her a dog. What's amazing about this account is that the woman doesn't back down. She speaks truth to power. She confronts Jesus and says, well, you can think that about me, but even dogs deserve the crumbs from the table. Her boldness and bravery to speak truth to power actually changes Jesus' mind. Jesus repents of his racism and extends healing to this woman's daughter. I love this story because it's a reminder that Jesus is human. He had prejudices and bias, and when confronted with it, he was willing to do his work. And this woman was willing to stand up and So let me get this right. Jesus was human, and not only was Jesus human, he was a racist. So it took this woman, this Greek woman, and her courage to speak truth to power to finally get Jesus to confront his racism. And then Jesus repented and healed her, healed her daughter. I can't even begin to try to rationalize how ignorant that statement is. 
This is someone who obviously has zero understanding of who Jesus is, zero understanding of why Jesus is here, and zero understanding of the relationship between the Greek world and the Jewish world of that time. He also clearly has no understanding of what Jesus came to this world to do. Jesus was human, and his racism had to be confronted. This is the type of morally relativistic thinking that is permeating the church, and this is what's called eisegetical teaching. This is when people who are not using the Word of God as their primary authority for all things begin to read their own personal biases into the text. They begin to take they, they begin to take the godliness out of the Bible and put their own understanding in the Bible. It's very clear to realize that this guy is approaching scripture from a from a social justice platform, trying to twist the scripture to fit his narrative. And in doing so, he actually strips Jesus of his deity, he strips Jesus of his purity, he strips Jesus of his godliness, and he strips Jesus of his ability to be a worthy offering on the cross for our benefit. This is someone who is so scripturally ignorant, they have no business ever being in front of a church for any reason, ever. But I'm not going to get worked up about it. Um, this is the kind of stuff that drives me insane. Think about this. When we're reading the Bible, are we reading the Bible to allow it to correct us? Or are we reading the Bible in a way that our personal biases and prejudices and views correct it? You understand what I'm saying? Are we are we reading the Bible to find ways of justifying our view by some sort of scriptural gymnastics, or are we reading the Bible to allow the Bible, allow God's word to man to correct our thinking in all areas of moral and immoral behavior, of right, wrong, and good? Are we reading the Bible in a way that is going to be pleasing to God, or are we reading the Bible in a way that is simply going to make me feel better about the position that I already have? It's pretty obvious where this guy was reading it from. And I agree with my wife. That was absolutely demonic. That is someone who does not have Christ in them. Sorry. It's, just, it's that simple. And again, this is called eisegesis. There's exegesis where you actually take the meaning of it. You mine the, 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 the central meaning out of the passage and you allow that passage to speak to you and correct you. And then there's eisegesis where you change the passage to fit your view, which is exactly what you were seeing. But this is why morally relativistic thinking is happening within the church, because you have people in the pulpits around of the churches of, uh, around the country. And I can say this because I'm one of those guys that's in the pulpit, and I have to deal with this on a regular basis. You have these people that are in the pulpits who have no respect for the authority of Scripture. Scripture is nothing more than an ancient document written by men about God. It's not the authority in your life, and they have no respect for the Word of God as the Word of God. It is not for them. It is not the Word of God written from God to man. It is the Word, uh, it is the Word about God written from men about God. It has no authority in their life. It has no grip in their life. It has no reality in their life. And because of that, this is where the great falling away is going to come from. 
This is why churches who preach this kind of nonsense become very, very popular because you have no standards by which to live. You're going to go there and you're going to hear really, really inspiring messages about how you are just like God, about how you are just like Jesus. One of my favorite Todd White heretical clips is Todd White talking about how Jesus was not, uh, did not come to earth and he did not heal people as God. He healed people as a man in right standing with God. That's called kenosis. Removing the deity of Christ and his, the whole purpose behind that is, is he says, cause if Jesus was God, then we have nothing to try to reach for. Then we have, then he can't be our model. Then it's, then he's too much for us and we can't actually become what he was. Well, guess what, Todd? You can't become what he was because he was God. You know, it's a really good thing that I don't actually get worked up about these things. I, I can maintain my cool about these things. It's very, it's very, very important that I w- I'd be able to do that. <laughs> but here's the reality. If scripture is not our one and only authority in all things, then what is it? You see, if we want to combat moral relativistic thinking in the world, and if we want to combat the morally relativistic twisting of scripture and watering down of the gospel, then there is only one way to do it. And that is to reclaim the word of God as our sole and only authority in all things spiritually based, in all things earthly based, in my relationship with other people, in my relationship with my wife, in the way that I approach my work, in the, in the way that I approach the teachings of scripture, in the way that I, the way that you deal with your kids, the way that you deal with your relatives, all of those things should be biblically based. Because if they are, the moment you start compromising on the little things about the Bible, the easier it's going to be for you to compromise on the big things that you find through scripture. That's a scary, horrible, terrible thing, but it happens constantly. And Scripture warns us that the great falling away doesn't it is is not the world falling away from Christ. The great falling away is the church falling away from the truth of God's word. Let's go back to these two verses, and then we're going to call it a night. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter, whose uh, who to those, uh, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. And in the days, in those days, there was no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Folks, I ask you a real simple question. What is your standard of right and wrong? And who is your king? What is your standard for right and wrong? And who is your king? Now remember, we're not, I'm not asking you to be perfect. I'm asking you to to hold up your flaws proudly and 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 happily let other people see the mess that is your life and don't apologize for that but don't give up the fight either remember the difference between a sinner caught a uh, um, uh, a saved person caught in sin and a and a sinner that's embracing sin is that the saved person fights the saved person doesn't doesn't give up the struggle the saved person isn't gonna, gonna use the excuse, I was born this way, to just stop fighting. We fight. We fight every day. Daily we take up our cross and daily we follow him. We fight. We fight every day. We fight all day long. We fight until the fight is over. Now, that's what it means to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We don't give up the fight. We continue the fight. Because Christ is worth it. What he did for us is worth it. 
And what he's promising us is worth it. That's why we fight. All right. I'm going to pray for you and let you go. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for this night. I want to thank you for the, for the truth and the authority of your word. I want to thank you for what it is that you have given us. I want to thank you for the, for the simple truth that you've placed in our lives, Lord. I want to thank you, Father, that you don't give up on us. That even if we have turned our back from you and we have walked away, we can always turn and come back to you and you welcome us. Father, help us to take the firm stand. Help us to fight the good fight. Lord, help us to not give up. To use your word as our absolute and only authority in all things. To not compromise. We thank you for this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Everyone, thank you so much for tonight. I will see you next week if I don't see you on Sunday. And uh, Lord bless. Have a great night. Bye-bye.